most women associate anger with powerlessness because that is how we experience it. And how we experience it is not a matter of our individual natures or qualities or feelings. It is really points to this deep structural and systemic problem of power. Hi, welcome to Ask a Feminist, a podcast from Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society. I'm Susanna Walters, editor of the journal. On this podcast, we actually ask feminists about the pressing issues of the day to provide the kind of feminist analysis and context that is often missing in mainstream coverage. Ask a Feminist is part of a larger initiative at Signs called the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project which is all available for free on our website at signsjournal.org. On today's episode, we are lucky to have an interview with Soraya Chamali, the feminist journalist and media critic, whose most recent book is Rage Becomes Her. The book does a wonderful job of discussing all the reasons women have to be angry in this moment, the ways that women are encouraged to suppress that anger, and the potential productivity of expressing it as part of a feminist collective movement. We actually have a series of excellent commentaries on the book up for free on our website, signsjournal.org. So we wanted to talk to Soraya for a lot of reasons, not least of which is that we are planning a special issue of signs on the topic of rage. The other participants in the conversation you are about to hear are two of the co-editors of that issue, Professors Carla Kaplan of Northeastern University and Durba Mitra of Harvard, both of whom are on the editorial board of the journal. The third co-editor of our Rage special issue, Sarah Haley, who's in Gender Studies at UCLA, unfortunately couldn't join us. But it's a great conversation about the politics of feminist rage right now. I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much um, for doing this, for being part of our inaugural Ask a Feminist podcast series here at Signs. You've already been part of Signs, so it feels like bringing you back. <laughs> um, the first question we wanted to ask you starts with something that's pretty obvious, which is that we are both academics, as you know. And as I think you also know, Durba and I are co-editing with Sarah Haley of UCLA, a forthcoming special issue of Signs on the theme of rage. And for that, we're going to be asking feminist scholars from a lot of different disciplines to think about rage as an urgent feminist issue vital to feminist scholarship today, and to also reflect on the history of feminist rage. And we wanted to know if you could reflect on the place of rage in feminist scholarship and activism. And by what I mean there is that Signs as a Journal is committed, and it's been part of its move to Boston, is its commitment to the place of scholarship in feminist practice and committed to creating new forms of exchange and collaboration between scholars and activists. And we wondered what you, as a journalist, an activist, as a public intellectual, want from scholars. What do oh, you think? Question. Here you have scholars, right? You've yes. got feminist scholars. Um, what do you see as the job of scholars in these enraging times? What do you need from scholars? What do you look for from us? It's a kind of how can we best be of use question. 
So that's such a wonderful question. Like it's like a too many gifts to consider. I really set out to work on all of these issues. I, I did it in my in college. I did it in my twenties, and then I stopped for a while, and I went back to it ten years ago, and very explicitly because I, as a reader and a writer, was frustrated that the amazing work being done by academics didn't seem to go beyond the walls of academia. And so when I started writing, I thought, how can I take all of these ideas that have helped me so much personally and share them, reframe them, tie them to pop culture, but share them in a way that more people are exposed to them? Because those of us who find this work, those of you who do this work, I think we are led there by some deep personal drive mm -hmm. or some profound alienation from the, from the culture. And um, I always thought, how do I get that information to people who would not have thought to take a gender or women's studies class or have very poor impressions of what feminism might be? And so even before you ask that question, I'm so grateful for all of the work. One of the things that really occurred to me as I was writing this book, Rage Becomes Her, I really tapped into readings and writings and academic analysis of literature and philosophy and science. And uh, what was striking to me and what I think I would love from scholars is more cross-discipline pollination of ideas. Mm -hmm. One thing that really struck me often was I'd see a remarkable, well-thought-out philosophical approach to a problem of emotion, for example. And then I would read a dissection of a Victorian novel. And what I really thought was, oh my God, why can't we have a conversation with those two people in the same room where those academic ideas, and I kind of think of it as a feminist version of chaos theory principles, where you have it, you have a cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary sharing of ideas that somehow enhances everything, if that makes sense. I still think there are lots of silos and that those silos hinder us as a movement. So one of the ways we can be mm -hmm. most useful to you is break down the silos, is yes. work to create inter- and transdisciplinary work that you can use Absolutely. more effectively. I mean, I like doing that work of trying yeah. to connect those dots. But we could... But I think, like, like even as a writer, I, I would so gladly sit and listen to you do that kind of connecting because you're just immersed in it in a way that I can't be. Right. So much of what you just described is very much part of the mission of science, which really believes that, in a way, gender studies created interdisciplinarity. It's mm -hmm. the one field where you do see a lot of that crossing over. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, so much of the public microphone gets seized by people who speak in our name, mm -hmm. speak for feminism, but who we do not recognize as our spokeswomen, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think about Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, for example, mm -hmm. and the way in which that got touted as some kind of work of feminism. So I really appreciate what you said as a way to be mindful of how feminists can make work that's accessible and useful to one another. I think there is one other thing now that you mentioned that, um, because I think of what you just described as the very typical anointing by mainstream media yeah. of an acceptable woman in narrative mm. to be the feminist that has been chosen to be in the limelight. And one thing that I also have found over and over and over again, particularly in the studies of rape and 
uh, narratives around rape and the framing of rape stories is um, this deep, deep, deep distrust of feminist academics. Yeah. And rooted in the idea that women certainly and feminists absolutely can't be quote-unquote objective, but everyone else is. And newsrooms, I think, went down that path for a very, very long time. And either they would quote a feminist, but then in that tried-and-true false equivalence way, quote a quote-unquote anti-feminist who had no credentials to to talk about a topic. So you'd end up with, you know, a feminist academic person who had really studied rape and war, Mm -hmm. and then a man who had an opinion about rape. Literally, that was the comparison. And so to the degree that some academics Mm -hmm. might be comfortable pushing against that in public Mm -hmm. discourse, it would be really helpful um, because I still think that continues. I mean, the thing that's so striking is that rage, the subject itself, is so contradictory. It's exactly, it brings out exactly the contradiction that you're describing, right? Which is that a person who is enraged doesn't have the right to expertise. Yes. And so you take an object, this question of rage, mm-hmm. and you bring expertise to it, mm-hmm. which I think is so brilliant, um, which is, I think, that's what's so interesting about being called a feminist who's talking about rage yes. as an expert um, rather and raging at the same and time. And raging at the same <laughs> yeah, time. exactly. That's right. But, but also, I think it also really, those combine in this idea that rage is irrational. Right. And I disagree entirely with that. I mean, to me, anger is, and I know we could talk about the nuances of different words for anger and rage, but anger is a really rational response. It it is a rational response. And and many people think much more clearly and coolly and methodically and logically when they feel this emotion. And they have a different path to decision. I mean, all of those things, you know, Mm -hmm. but still because of the tying together of the ideas of femininity, women, and emotion, um, it's as though that's not, that's not even possible. You can't possibly be saying that. The thing that's, it's very interesting to to bring up the question of the rationality of rage, because I might um, ask you a little bit about another dimension of rage, Mm -hmm. which you spoke a little bit about in our short takes. Over the last year, um, and of course before that, there have been multiple videos and accounts of people of color and women and girls of color in particular experiencing aggrieved rage Mm -hmm. is a form of privilege against them. For example, the eyewitness who records a white woman expressing deeply racialized rage, calling the police to report a young black girl who's working at a lemonade stand or calling the police on a man of color who enters their own residence. Mm -hmm. So as we know, the so-called stand your ground laws made white fears of black black and brown people not only normative, but grounds for violence and legal grounds for violence. And now, of course, the president, newly emboldened, constantly tries to ramp up a kind of violent right rage and resentment. So in in your signs short takes response to the forum on Rage Becomes Her, you said that you had regretted a little not being able to devote more time to resentment anger yes. in the book. Um, the anger, as you described, which I think is such a beautiful phrase of aggrieved entitlement. Um, this resentment rage or racialized rage is often based in the complicated position of privileged women who carry and enforce str- strong racial prejudices, people who are enforcing white supremacy. Absolutely. So I wondered whether you would be willing now, you know, yes. after the release of your book, to think about with us a- yes. about what does this aggrieved entitlement look like? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we see examples of it all the time. The phrase came um, from some of those first discussions of white male shooters in Columbine mm. and Michael Kimmel, um, who also had a co-author 
um, whose name eludes me, but it comes from the analysis of basically that terroristic, you know, quote unquote, lone wolf shooter, um, but I think is much more broadly applicable. And one of the interesting aspects of what I delineate in the book as resentment, there's the anger of looking back, this, you know, the, the perceived loss, the aggrieved entitlement that is all over Trump and his campaign. It's all about what we lost and make America great again. And this mythology that you were owed something because of your identity, which of course is not referenced at all. We're just not going to talk about that identity is the way that po po that political narrative goes. But then there's the anger of looking forward. Mm. And that's not resentment. That's I, what I describe as the anger of hope. But in these instances, which we have seen over and over again with all of these cutesy nicknames that get appended to the women who enact them, is what I think of as a microcosm of the larger issues of toxic border patrol masculinity. Mm -hmm. And so we see that too, right? We, we see that men have this political power. They talk about building walls and enforcing borders, and they refer to one country raping another country. And the language of nationalism and national borders is infused with a lot of toxic masculinity and a lot of white supremacy, too. But women don't have that power. They don't actually have that level of institutional power. Instead, they're literally policing sidewalks and lemonade stands mm. and um, gated communities and local pools. And they're doing the exact same thing. They're, they're enforcing the same kinds of rules, but they're using their authority where they can. So I wonder, though, because so much of your book is about women harnessing rage, mm -hmm. what, does it, what does that prescriptive idea look like when we're talking about differentiating what you're saying, harnessing, you know, positive, power, yes, right, you know, jingoistic, so nationalistic power. The subtitle of my book is The Power of Women's Anger. Mm. And there were a lot of suggestions that we qualify that oh. with, you know, positive power, the revolutionary power. I mean, it, it, there, was, there was a list of 25 qualifiers uh, that I rejected. And I said, it's going to get too long if I try and explain that that power is both positive and negative, that it's corrosive and constructive. Like there was, there was another list of 25. And what I try and explain in the book is, and this is what I regretted because there wasn't enough, sp I cut 40,000 words from the book, but there is this dangerous corrosive rage. There is this rage that fuels contempt and disgust and xenophobia and racism and misogyny. And I remember one of the parts I took out was the powerful historic influence that women on the right had in shaping the American GOP because they were responding in anger to the feminist movement, which they felt was disdaining their choices to be homemakers. And so they really focused their rage on anti-abortion, quote unquote, pro-family politics. And that transformed the Republican Party. You know, and I think that's why Rebecca's book is such an important. Brittany Cooper wrote her book, Eloquent Rage. It was released about six months before mine. And then mine came out. And then a month later, Rebecca Traister's Good and Mad came out. You know, our books are really remarkably, the three of us wrote very different books about anger. But they're very complementary in many ways. We were sitting individually, separately, not having talked to each other, writing this collection of ideas. But yeah, I, I think it's powerfully negative, too. Is that quality something that 
we can help mainstream people recognize so that when they hear your rage and they hear somebody like Sarah Sanders or Kellyanne Conway raging, that they can hear that difference, that they can hear not just that there's a different content being expressed, Mm -hmm. because, of course, we can differentiate feminist rage and the rage of aggrieved entitlement by content. Mm -hmm. But is there something about the authoritarian quality of their rage that we can help people listen to so that they can hear that difference so that we don't all sound the same. The same, that there's not this equation. And, and should I not worry about that? Should that not be something I worry about? So I actually think that, <laughs> that that's one dimension of this much bigger problem of just education. Yeah. You know, people, I was on a, I had a conversation the other day about, I think the question posed was, how do we fix democracy? And I kind of laughed and I said, you're just assuming it ever worked. <laughs> what kind of assumption is that? Because in fact, it's always been broken. And in fact, we've always had authoritarian tendencies. And in fact, slavery was authoritarianism. And yet we refuse to call that. We refuse to look at our history honestly and to have that kind of open discussion. And so being able to get to the point that you're describing, it seems to me, would be the natural outcome of educating people in our own history um, from the perspective of oppressed people and minority people and indigenous people and women, all that, you know, popular history, that social history that often still, I think, is disdained sometimes. And, and so it's almost, I don't know what's that expression about a cart and a horse. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we couldn't get people to understand the distinction that we're making between those two forms of anger without the larger context of that. There are many people who don't see the difference between Serena Williams's rage yes. and Brett Kavanaugh's rage. That's them, right. Um, because and your response was about education, which yes. I think is an interesting response yeah. because I think you're saying, let's let's think about one form of rage, as you're saying, which is about outrage at being marginalized, at being mm-hmm. minoritized and subordinated and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. But I think what's interesting is that the rage of, as you're saying, the cutesy names that yes. they give the white woman who calls the, the lemonade mm-hmm. stand um, is the language. It's the same language of being minoritized yes. or being marginalized. Yes, and right? they feel that deeply. Right, exactly. So in fact, there is parallel language being used about historical aggrievement. Yes. Um, and I think that's a more complicated question because then there's an ethical question of how do we differentiate? So this is really interesting. Two things occurred to me when you said that. The first is that I think that that might be an example. I reserve judgment because I don't think there's been enough time, but it might be an example of backlash leveling up. Mm. So, you know, when Phyllis Schlafly did her thing, she never would call herself a feminist. Mm -hmm. But Christine Hoff Summers calls herself a feminist and has to use the language of feminism and the structures and intellectual framework of feminism. So while the content of her words might strike some people as profoundly anti-feminist. In fact, the entire structure of the debate has shifted ground. And that's a kind of hopeful step forward. And it mirrors things to me like 
climate denial and evolution and words like intelligent design being used because, in fact, the principles of science have to be respected. And in the last 30 years, the principles of feminism have taken hold. So you can no longer mock them or walk away from them. So maybe there's some of that going on in that what you're identifying, which is a conservative, xenophobic, racist person enacting this border patrolling, she's still now using language that she probably didn't even have Mm -hmm. before. And that's a difference, you know. The other thing, too, that struck me about the Serena Williams and Brett Kavanaugh discussion, because still, even seven months after those events, I keep being asked why they're not the same thing, which is striking to me. I just can't, like in my brain, I'm like, how can you, the only thing that remotely brings those two things together is the use of the word court, like a court of law and a tennis court. That is it. (laughs) Like, as far as I can tell, that is it, right? But what happened with the Serena Williams situation, I think, points to this issue of education. Some people looked at that and they saw uh, two people, a ref and a player, a man and a woman. There was this exchange. They didn't think it was very civil. And she should be punished for behaving in a bad way like any other tennis player. Other people looked at it and they saw that incident in a giant context bubble. And they saw all the discrimination that she had faced over the course of her experiences, including the six months before with her, you know, compression suit and a whole host of other issues. They saw him exercising a very nuanced but familiar kind of power in their exchange. He did not choose to de-escalate. He seemed very uh, put out by her in a specific way. I mean, lots of people were watching and just having a very different experience watching. And it just, to me, came down to whether you had a sense that the context and the history and the experiences mattered, whether you had any idea of why microaggressions can be so stressful you know, why they would accumulate, why she would put a stake in the ground. It's very clear that Serena Williams is exquisitely aware of every word that she speaks. She has to be, you know, whereas he was not. He just acted the way he felt. So I do think that that issue of education is paramount. And I think we're seeing a shift in public knowledge happen right now. A good shift or a bad shift? I mean, I I can see... A good shift. There was a a lot of complexity to the fight and the discussion about Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. And in some instances, I think feminist voices were heard and voices of minoritized people were heard about microaggressions and context. Mm -hmm. But insofar as it seems that aggrieved entitlement is part of the election of 45, Mm -hmm. is part of this nightmare moment of Kavanaugh and others. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is this moment? How, I mean, everybody has asked the same question, how we can have 45 and me too. I can't even say his name. How we can have 45 and me too at the same moment, how we can have both 45 and the the women's march. I mean, it, it does seem a really peculiar moment. I can't really... I find it very hard to think of this in terms of the United States alone. Mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. think it's global. Yeah. And we can see this rending of the social fabric. And I think some of it is just pure economics, just the extreme disparities in wealth, the 
physical burden of poverty that so many people bear that makes it impossible to function, really, like to function at all. And so I just think we're seeing the stresses that come with that Mm -hmm. at the same time as we're seeing a global backlash that's enduring. I don't think it's new. I think it's been the case for now decades, but it's really coming to a head because people are demanding more. You know, they're demanding a safety net. They're demanding that someone address oligarchy. They're demanding and demanding and demanding. And that's what I think we're seeing. One of the questions we wanted to ask you Mm -hmm. was also a subtitle question, Mm -hmm. but not about the word anger, but about the word women's. In the short takes, which we were so fortunate to have with Mm -hmm. you in signs, one of the areas that some of the scholars Mm -hmm. and activists raised questions about was your use of the large category of, of women, women yes. or women, and even the yes. phrase women's anger. Yes. And I wondered if you had more to say about any of that so, pushback and more to say about how you look at the category mm-hmm. right now of woman, where you think it's useful to generalize, where you think it's dangerous. Not, right. Yeah. So this is, I think, really important because my first instinct was to say feminine anger. Really? Yes. Feminine, not feminist. Yes. Interesting. Feminine anger. Really? Yes. And actually, saying feminine anger makes it seem maybe uh, seem a little more academic because you would need to have an understanding of the difference between feminine and the category woman Mm -hmm. and the category feminist. And um, we actually, I think, in publishing this book, didn't want it to come off as an overly academic book. So even people who identify as men or non-binary or queer, if they have a more feminine affect in, and if they are experiencing anger in a specific way, I would say that they're experiencing feminine anger, that they're experiencing anger as a feminine person. So that what I'm describing here overwhelmingly does actually um, affect a category of people, women. Virtually anywhere in the world, there are some certain things, like the threat of male violence provokes a certain response in people. But but in fact, what I'm talking about is fem- feminine. It is the construction of that gendered identity and gender role expectations being imposed on children um, that is being so policed, that is being so regulated. For us, I think we're immersed in these ideas. And so being able to delineate between a person who's born and called a girl and a person who is feminine, whether it's a six-year-old girl or boy or a 50-year-old trans person, that's hard for some people still. Like they they are not separating gender from sex or gender from sexual identity. And trying to explain that in a subtitle is impossible. So at every turn, I try and at least when available, and there's not a lot available, introduce and include the studies that really talk about masculinity versus femininity. It's hard. I mean, the category, this is interesting because I too am fascinated actually by this question of women, but I want to know why we're not asking about men. Mm -hmm. Why is the question actually all about 
whether women as a category is a legitimate category. It's not just whether, because you ask that, you have to ask the same question of men. And I don't see those conversations happening. You know, I think the thing that's, you know, to bring up the question of power, I think the other question, and this will um, bring me to to kind of thinking about what the vision of politics is. You know, we can talk about the category of woman. And of course, feminists have talked about it for decades. Um, and of course, I think some of the most stringent and important critiques have been about the fact that black women yes. is maybe not the same category. You no, know, womanhood that's right. doesn't, you know, doesn't include black doesn't. women in America. Right. And so much of your book thinks about the racialization of rage, mm-hmm. which is such an interesting idea that if feminine had been a subtitle, yes. you know, the racialization of, that's the, right. of femininity, it's a very interesting idea. Yeah, you can't, you literally cannot capture the scope of complexity that just a few words brings, that are really limiting words. Right. All of them are limiting words. And yet we have to work with them. And yet we, and this is interesting. The difficulty of challenging a system whose language is the only tool you have. Feminist linguistics have grappled with that for decades. Certainly as a writer, I feel acutely aware of it every day. Right. And I think that kind of, you know, brings us to our next question, which is, um, thinking about that category, whether it's womanhood, Mm -hmm. femininity, um, about the relationship between the individual who experiences rage and Mm -hmm. what you described towards the end of your book about what the action is supposed to be, Mm -hmm. and in in our case, feminist action. You have suggested that women harness rage. Um, It's about kind of collective action. Mm -hmm. And as you describe, working with the words, those limiting words with which we live and with which power is organized in our society. Are you advocating then for some version of an idea of consciousness around particular these particular concepts, consciousness raising? Yes. Um, and is it time to bring back consciousness raising? And what do you think consciousness looks like then for us today? So many questions. I do think that anger is a form of consciousness raising. I think we're socialized to deal with anger in a way that is deliberately isolating, mm. that isolates us. And I'm, in my book, suggesting that that's unhealthy because over and over and over again we see ways in which it is actually physically unhealthy, mentally unhealthy, and that instead of thinking of anger as this overwhelming and crushingly negative experience or emotion, that we learn to make meaning of it in a way that builds constructive community. But specifically what I try and talk about is this idea of epistemic justice and the role that anger plays in achieving it. Because without the information, as Audre Lorde said, that is in anger, without the knowledge and experience that anger brings, our societies cannot understand these experiences that we have as individuals or as communities and as a society. And so to me, the recognition and acknowledgement and meaning of anger is a way of achieving epistemic justice Mm. because it both confronts testimonial injustice and it, it addresses this second quality of hermeneutic injustice. There is literally ignorance about our experiences because they are cloaked in silence or shame or punishment and penalty. And we need we need that not to be the case. So the consciousness raising that I think is really already happening today tends to happen as a result, the positive result of these technologies that we use. You know, if you think about free bleeding movements and shout your abortion and, you know, body positivity movements, there are a lot of things you can say about those that are critical. 
but overwhelmingly they are anti-stigmatizing and and I think that they're revolutionary because now people who are supporting those movements can reach out to each other across borders, across neighborhoods, are no longer isolated. It was just always possible to isolate a rebellious girl or woman. Mm-hmm. Lock her in a house, lock her in a church basement, you know, punish her, starve her, do whatever you were going to do. And that's virtually, it's not impossible. Clearly, that's still happening. And it, there are terrible things that are happening to girls and women and children. And But you can't do that the same way. You actually gain this momentum that we see in these hashtags. And each hashtag builds on the, the, the next. There's a real genealogy to them. So Me Too didn't happen in a vacuum. It, it came out of 10 earlier hashtags, each one of which shared more information and shared. The only bad thing to me about that is the self-flagellation involved, the outpouring of trauma and sadness and pain that so many people have to go through just to have the society acknowledge it. I really, uh, one of the things I so appreciate both about your book, but also the conversation that it has generated, as well as uh, the, the group of books that have come out about rage, is your attention to the particularities of this moment, which it struck us that there's a, a bit of a double bind for some of us right now, that we're faced on the one hand with the need to very strongly defend civility. Mm-hmm. We have a president who is not only a bully, right, but who keeps giving power to other bullies, keeps modeling all kinds of forms of bullying. Mm -hmm. So we have to respond to that by arguing for civility, right? At the same time that we're also trying to argue for the positivity of anger Mm -hmm. and the need to express anger. Mm -hmm. I really wrote the book in large part because I felt that only a particularly narrow type of anger was recognized. Mm -hmm. And that was the anger that you most typically see in an enraged, violent man, usually publicly a white man. And that that was not good enough, (laughs) right? That should not be our standard for what anger is because it's a piss-poor standard. Mm -hmm. And it is, in fact, an example of the most dysfunction that you can imagine by the time someone has gotten Mm -hmm. to that point of violence or rage or destruction. And you don't want anybody to get to that point. Um, So one of the things I really wanted to do was say, look at all this other anger that we refuse to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Look at the anger that results in people being very sick or the anger that's resident in this notion that women report twice as much stress or the anger that clearly has fueled what the the right hates, which is the dissolution of the nuclear family, you know? I mean, the irony of that is that the best solution for the right would be to adopt feminist principles of relationships and egalitarianism, because 70% of divorces in the country are initiated by women because of intimate inequality, right? And so I'm saying, look at all this different anger and acknowledge that it exists and also look at the different ways that anger can be expressed that is not destructive and violent. Mm -hmm. You can be civil and firm. You can be civil and stubborn. You can have a very straightforward and calm conversation. You can take your anger and have it be 
joyful and creative and explosive in those ways. And, you know, most of the feminist activist women that I know, and men too, but it's overwhelmingly women, have come together in communities and made change. And they did that because they were mad. The starting point is almost always the perception of injustice and the desire to do something about that injustice. And and a lot of people won't say, I was angry, unless they think back. If you actually prod them, they'll say, well, actually, yes, I was angry. But before they say, I was angry, they'll say, I was just tired of that happening, or I didn't like what I was seeing. But you just push a little more, and you're like, well, how did that make you feel? It didn't really make you feel warm and fuzzy in a good way. And they'll say, I was angry. So I just think there is a much broader diversity of the experience of anger and also the expression of anger. And I, I, mean, I love that idea, right? Which is that utilizing rage is not in the domain of incivility. Right? Yes, that's actually that's exactly right. right. What we should be calling incivility is the woman who suffers two times as much pain or five times that's as much right. pain. But we don't call that. We but call we it don't civility. Call it. That's mm-hmm. right. It's like she's not saying anything, yeah. right. you know, because she's being polite. Yeah. And um, I had a very funny thing happen uh, last month. It was a very interesting exchange. I was on a plane, and this is such a specifically not problem problem but I think it illustrates the issue um, it was very late I'd missed a plane I'd finally gotten on a plane and um, there was a man sitting behind me and I had pushed back my seat when we took off and uh, two flight attendants came over and asked me to put my seat up and I wasn't sure why and and I said well we're not about to land but you know why do I need to put my seat up and one of them said well the man behind you is uncomfortable and I said oh um well, it's my understanding that I purchased this seat with that button and I have the right to push my seat back. It's sort of the social contract of the airplane and he has the same ability. Exactly. But I'm smiling, right? But I was really angry because I thought, seriously, this is just, the person in front of me also has their seat back. And she said, well, we just thought it would be nice if you could move your seat up. And I smiled broadly and I said, it would be. (laughs) And I didn't say anything else. And at that moment, she looked extremely upset and flustered. And I think that's when she perceived that I was really angry. And she didn't know what to do about this. And she said, but I was being really civil. And I was very conscious that I wasn't raising my voice or, you know, and and I was also very conscious that I wasn't in the United States and I wasn't a black person. And there was like all this swirling through my head. And she said, well, there are three empty seats over there. And, you know, if you need more space, you could sit there. And I said, I'm fine. I don't need more space. Why don't you ask the gentleman behind me? They're actually opposite his seat. So she asked him, and he said, no, he wouldn't move. (gasps) And halfway (laughs) through the flight, she loudly came barreling down the aisle, or another uh, flight attendant, and uh, gave him a monetary credit for his forbearance. No. Mm -hmm. She did. And so when I got off... He was the aggrieved party. He was the aggrieved party. And he refused to move. And he got money. And he I mean, got he money. was monetary. He got paid. He yeah, got he paid got paid for being the white aggrieved man. He did. And so when I got off, it was late when I got off that plane, and I went up to the... I, I was really angry because it made me, of course, seem like the bitch and right. the not nice person and the not accommodating everything, all the expectations. And I think that what your book does, in addition to pointing out that your anger was seen as completely illegitimate. Oh, totally illegitimate. And his was not only legitimate, but could produce capital. I know. Um, was that, you know, 
I imagine when you got off the plane, your shoulders were tight, your Everything. neck was tight, I was right? Just so the bodily, yes, you know, that's it, so much so important in your book. That's right. It was, and I walked up to the man at the gate, and he was very nice. But I said to him, you know, we both had equal rights to be in that airplane, and that is not how we were treated. I don't really understand what happened here. And he said, well, it shouldn't have happened. I said, but it happens all the time. And it's such a microaggressive yes. interaction because you think, I don't want to make a big fuss. It's not a big But that's how they work. And, and part of what you're pointing to would have been our last question. I think we're pretty much out of time. But we were interested in, in what you would say about the times when women's anger doesn't seem like it was powerful, right? When mm. women's anger doesn't seem able how they, to affect change. That's but right. that's exactly what happened on the plane. We had been talking, getting ready for this interview, about how incomprehensible it was to both of us that that all of our rage over Blasey Ford mm -hmm. didn't stop Kavanaugh, yes. right? He is now Supreme Court Justice. It seems incredible to me that Emma Gonzalez's, again, somebody who yes. so carefully manages her anger, right? Mm -hmm. That her rage over those massacres didn't enact changes in gun laws. But that's exactly what you're pointing to in this story on the airplane. You're pointing to the ways in which our rage gets disempowered mm -hmm. while his request, he doesn't even have to get angry, no. gets not only empowered, but compensated. Monetized. It right. gets monetized. Yes. And your book, I think, has been very helpful in pointing to where our rage can be powerful, mm -hmm. but actually where it gets disempowered. Well, and most <laughs> women, this is the important thing, I think, most women associate anger with powerlessness because that is how we experience mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And how we experience it is not a matter of our individual natures or qualities or feelings. It is really points to this deep structural and systemic exactly. problem of power. And people don't like talking about power in their intimate relationships. They don't like talking about power you know, among their friends or in their social lives or in their professional lives. They can barely talk about it in terms of politics. You know, this morning I was laughing because in, I think NPR did a segment on uh, male politicians and the fact that maybe for the first time they have to directly address their race and their gender. And it is 2019, and that is a conversation but of of course, part of the heartbreak of your airline story is that the flight, the female flight stewards who monetized him and disempowered you, mm -hmm. are directly analogous to the white female yes, voters absolutely. in this election. That's right? right. Because in fact, this reproduction of the mm -hmm. systemic inequality you're talking about. Women have played a very uncomfortable role in, and they do in your airline story. Oh, for sure. Which I do is have a good ending, though. Oh, good. We'll end. We'll we'll end with that. Well, it was interesting because I I ha I did uh, an event in Sydney called All About Women. It happened while I was flying there, and so I used this as as an example of the idea of space and anger taking up space. This was just a kind of a metaphor for the way that space ends up being portrayed and because of the systems that we build ends up seeming like zero sum. There's so much space and you're going to claim some space. And when you claim space, that person has less space, right? And anger is the space emotion. It's the emotion that blows the air out of the room when somebody has this emotion, right? And so I told this story and afterwards a uh, 
woman approached me who happened to be on the board of the airline. And she said, um, can, can we talk? And um, I'd like to use your example because flight attendants still believe that it's their job to make men comfortable on planes. And I thought that was really interesting. Will you let us know when this woman who works for the airlines gives you two first class That's round right. trip tickets <laughs> and monetizes your I experience? Know. It was just because really per- you, I was like, oh man, so you don't want to be doing this to me. No, I'm just gonna write about it. <laughs> I'm just gonna use it. Well, I think I think we're gonna wrap there to make sure you can get yes. to your fourth. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was thank so you. fun. This was food. I know uh, we could do this forever. I, I, I want the rest of your questions. Well, I hope you found that conversation as interesting as I did. And if you weren't angry before, you sure should be now. Thanks again to Soraya for speaking with us and to Carla and Durba for facilitating such a great conversation. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review. And check out our website where you can find tons of fabulous free feminist content, including our short take series where we offer commentaries on feminist books like Soraya's Rage Becomes Her and most recently, Charlene Carruthers' Unapologetic. We also have a series called Feminist Frictions, which features essays on controversial topics like trigger warnings and identity politics. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Signs Journal. I'm Susanna Walters. Thanks for listening.